This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Thank you very much indeed for coming. Uh, I'm Sheila MacDonald. It's my privilege to shepherd, although I don't have very much to do today, as you will see, but to shepherd the next very precious 55 minutes. I should also say welcome to what is the biggest venue uh, this book festival has ever had. So who better to more than fill it uh, than the man that you have come to see and hear talk about uh, a chapter in our shared military history, something that happened actually less than 75 years ago. Um, please welcome the author of this book, Arnhem, The Battle of the Bridges, 1944, Sir Anthony Beaver. Shana, thank you very much indeed. At dawn on the 17th of September 1944, Mosquito fighter bombers as well as squadrons of medium bombers took off for the Netherlands. This was the overture to Operation Market Garden, General uh, Field Marshal Montgomery's plan to jump the River Rhine at Arnhem and advance into Germany. Montgomery was convinced that if he could get across the Rhine before uh, General Patton to his south, uh, then General Eisenhower, the Supreme Commander, would be forced to give him the bulk of the supplies and uh, command over American formations. That morning, more than 20,000 paratroopers queued for breakfast near airfields all over England. The American 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions had hot cakes and syrup, fried chicken with all the trimmings, and apple pie. Paratroopers from the 1st British Airborne piled their mess tins with smoked haddock, quite a lot of which ended up on the floor of the aircraft, a sergeant remarked. As the British 1st Airborne lined up for mugs of tea and uh, before boarding, some demonstrated conspicuous optimism, such as taking a football ready for a celebratory uh, game uh, on Arnhem Bridge. Uh, the American equivalent appeared to consist mostly of fantasies about yet another foreign country. A young uh, lieutenant remembered wondering what all those blonde girls really looked like with wooden shoes on their feet and windmills in their eyes. A number of American paratroopers had heard that Netherlands was the country of diamonds, and they dreamed of re returning home uh, with a considerable amount of loot to set themselves up in style. The first aircraft to take off carried each division's pathfinders, uh, who would drop on the landing and uh, drop zones, fight off any Germans, and guide in the wave of troop carriers. At least 20 of the British Pathfinder Company were in fact German Jews or Austrians uh, who had transferred from the Pioneer Corps. To conceal their origins in case of capture, their dog tags and identity papers carried Scottish or English names. And these Jews would fight ferociously, taunting the Germans in their own language. Next to leave were the tug planes and their gliders carrying divisional headquarters and field ambulances, motorcycles, anti-tank guns, uh, and so forth. Finally, it was the turn of the C-47 uh, or Dakota troop carriers. 
with a deafening roar, their engines suddenly speeded up, the propeller blast flattening the grass on either side of the uh, runway, and then the heavily laden aircraft accelerated away. Inside the strutted uh, metal cave of the fuselage, uh, the paratroopers sat wedged in their aluminium bucket seats. Facing each other across the narrow aisle, they mostly avoided eye contact until they reached cruising height. As the Air Armada crossed the North Sea, the Guards Armoured Division prepared for its attack north from the Belgian frontier all the way to Arnhem and beyond, over, well over 60 miles. The plan was to join up with the American 101st Airborne at Eindhoven uh, that night, then charge on to Nijmegen, where they hoped that the 82nd Airborne would have captured the huge bridge over the River Vaal. And from there, it was a straight road up to Arnhem and General Urquhart's 1st Airborne. The Irish Guards Group could just see the border through their binoculars. Many had that strange feeling of imminent danger in the pit of the stomach. Their commander, Colonel Joe Vandeleur, who'd been a, a keen horseman in his uh, youth before he severely damaged a leg, thought it felt like the start of a rage. We were lining up at the start line, and the finish was the Zyder Z, 90 miles away. In Arnhem and the nearby village of Osterbeck on this Sunday morning, churches were not as full as usual. Congregations consisted almost only of women and children and a few old men. The men had dived under cover to avoid being taken hostage or shot in reprisal for a resistance attack on a viaduct the night before. Bombs exploding in the distance made windows rattle. Then suddenly, a cut in the electricity supply brought church organs to a groaning halt as the lights went out. The congregation in the Dutch Reformed Church in Oosterbeek guessed that the attacks signified an imminent Allied invasion. Spontaneously, they stood up and burst into the national anthem forbidden by the Germans, Hetfield Helmus. Despite later conspiracy theories that the invasion plan of Operation Market Garden had been betrayed, the Germans were taken totally by surprise. General Feldmarschall Model and his staff had to evacuate the Hotel Tafelberg in Osterbeek, which they turned into their headquarters, when British paratroopers and gliders began to land, purely by chance, some three kilometers to their west. The only German unit ready for action in the area uh, that Sunday afternoon was an SS training and replacement battalion commanded by SS Sturmbahnführer Sepp Kraft. He guessed very quickly that the objective was the bridge at Arnhem. So he deployed his men to form a blocking line to slow the British advance along the two main routes into Arnhem. For reasons explained in the book, the whole plan was profoundly flawed. In fact, Operation Market Garden should never have been launched. Urquhart's first airborne was dropped some eight miles west of its objective, which meant that the whole advantage of surprise was lost the moment they landed. Montgomery and General Boy Browning had also fatally underestimated the German ability to react with unbelievable speed and ruthless prioritization, neither of which were British virtues. <coughs> that very night, tanks were rushed by rail on blitz transports from all over Germany.
scratch units assembled immediately. For example, Herbert Stenzelmunner, a, a Kriegsmarine naval cadet, was out on a Sunday afternoon stroll in the ancient city of Kleva, just over the German border, when sirens sounded. Members of the Feldgendarmerie drove through the streets, uh, ordering all service personnel to report for duty immediately. The naval cadets were issued with Dutch rifles, captured in 1940, and they were driven to Nijmegen. Stelzenmüller and his companions saw a German officer with two Dutch teenagers who'd been captured wearing orange armbands. The RAD commander Trutagaji's pistol, Stelzenmüller wrote, and shot the two unarmed Dutch boys in cold blood. Both fell dead in the roadway. German troops in the area of Arnhem did not wait for orders. They set off on foot, by bicycle, or in vehicles as fast as they could towards the sound of firing. In a marked contrast, parts of the British First Airborne were distracted from their advance to get to the Arnhem Bridge uh, as fast as possible. Lieutenant Colonel Fitch's 3rd Battalion, on reaching Osterbeek with its red brick roads, began to experience almost embarrassing scenes of joy and generosity. The people were shouting and pointing in the streets, wrote Jan Voskiel, laughing and clapping. Small boys jumped up and down. Because the paratroop helmet was uh, round and unlike the usual British soup plate shape, Jan Eckelhoff, uh, also with the resistance, asked if they were American. Not bloody likely came the offended reply, were British. Pretty Dutch girls kissed the soldiers, sweaty from the march uh, and the heat. Cheering civilians, uh, women and old men, offered fruit and drinks, including gin. Officers shouted orders that nobody was to drink alcohol or stop. Younger Dutchmen emerged from hiding, often teenagers, and begged to be allowed to accompany them and fight too. West and northwest of Osterbeek, Kraft's SS trainees were able to slow the advance to Arnhem because the 1st and 3rd parachute battalions stopped to deal with each little group or take circuitous routes round them. But Kraft lacked the men to block the southern route along the River Rhine. And this was why most of Lieutenant Colonel John Frost's 2nd parachute battalion was able to slip through and take up position around the northern end of the bridge. 64 miles to the south, the Sherman tanks of the Irish Guards had been ambushed that afternoon, the moment they crossed the Dutch frontier. A dozer tank was uh, uh, needed um, to push the burning Shermans off the road, because nine of them were shot up and set ablaze straight away. Montgomery had rejected the warning by Dutch officers that the single narrow road raised above the Polderland floodplain on either side could be a death trap. Van der Leer's brigade commander told the Irish guards to spend that first night in Valkensvaart when they were supposed to have reached Eindhoven by then. General Horrocks agreed because they'd heard that the bridge at Son, north of Eindhoven, had been blown by the Germans. But this was an astonishing uh, decision by van der Leer's superiors. All the bridging equipment was in the long column, stretching all the way back into Belgium, far behind, uh, because they were, needed, um, the, they were needed to push on through that night so as to allow the Royal Engineers to get to work. The American engineers with the 101st Airborne simply did not have the equipment to rebuild a bridge to carry tanks. 
Frost's force at the bridge stood to before dawn the next morning, Monday the 18th of September. With spare magazines to hand and grenades ready primed, they waited for the inevitable counterattack. A cold mist rising off the Rhine almost obscured the bridge, uh, wrote a member of the Mortar Platoon. At nine o'clock, just out of sight on the southern part of the bridge, a column of some 20 vehicles formed up from Hauptsturmführer Grebner's reconnaissance battalion of the SS Panzer Division Hohenstaufen. Grebner raised his arm. All the drivers began revving their engines. Um, he gave the signal and the vehicles accelerated forward. Puma eight-wheeler armoured cars led the way, followed by open half-tracks. And finally, Blitz Opal trucks, which only had sandbags around the outside as a protection for the soldiers on board. A British signaller up in the attic uh, overlooking the bridge shouted, armoured cars coming across. And the paratroopers expected the leading vehicles to blow up on the necklace of mines that they had laid across the road. But the four Pumas at the front uh, were untouched and just charged through, firing their 50mm guns and their machine guns, accelerated down the ramp and on into the town of Arnhem. Determined to make up for their slow start, Frost paratroopers reacted with every rifle, Bren and Sten gun available. The mortar platoon and the Vickers machine guns also opened up with devastating effect. The anti-tank gunners found their range, and the next seven vehicles were hit and set ablaze. Grabner's men tried to escape, but the vehicles crashed into each other. A half-track backed into the one behind, and they became locked. Their ambushers were able to fire down and lob grenades both into the driver and then the panzer grenadier uh, compartments. They were completely exposed. Another half-track tried to uh, escape down the side bank of the ramp and smashed into the school building uh, where it was dealt with, the defend dealt with by the defenders of the Royal Engineers. Yet another crashed the barrier onto the bridge and fell onto the riverside road, which ran underneath. Some of those trapped up on the, still up on the bridge jumped from the parapet into the River Rhine, and Grebner himself is said to have been killed when he climbed out of his armoured car to try to sort out the chaos. The smell of roasted flesh permeated the air for hours afterwards, mixed in with the stench of the oily black smoke from the blazing vehicles. Once the furious firing uh, died down, the 1st Parachute Brigade's war cry from North Africa, War Mohammed, rang out. Soon it was reverberating all around the bridge, an officer recorded. When the cheering ended, all that could be heard was the factory siren howling away. Will we be getting overtime for this, sir, called a platoon joker? The whistle's just gone. Frost men would have been a good deal less enthusiastic at their initial triumph if they had known quite how slowly the Guards' armour division was advancing. Still under the astonishing misapprehension that American airborne engineers could repair the bridge at Sonne, the Irish Guards had what Vandeleur himself called a leisurely start, leaving Valkenswart at only 10 o'clock in the morning. Numerous delays during the day meant that they were more than 24 hours behind schedule by the time they joined up with the 101st Airborne in Eindhoven that night. Royal Engineers worked flat out all through the night, 
to repair and build a Bailey Bridge at Sodden to replace the one blown up. And that meant, though, that by the following morning, by the Tuesday, the 19th of September, the Guards armament were by then 36 hours behind schedule. American paratroopers liberating Eindhoven and other towns to the north soon encountered Dutch revenge on those who had consorted with Germans during the occupation. In Vekol, an American paratroop officer wrote, The collaborators were routed out of their homes for a long-delayed retribution. The girls were mostly rather young and sensual-featured, and they went undemonstrably to have their hair shorn. They seemed to accept it as an expected fate. And the Dutch crowds who watched the tonsorial administration of justice displayed none of the sickening and almost animal glee that French crowds showed on similar occasions. They were amused, that was all. In Eindhoven, a Dutch doctor, Dr. Boyons, saw a group surrounding two attractive women who were about to have all their hair cut off. The shearer was clicking his scissors in anticipation when two American paratroopers from the 101st Airborne with Thompson submachine guns broke the circle. Stop that nonsense, they ordered, aiming their weapons. Then each one took a woman by the arm and led them off through the throng and into the town. The frustrated Avengers could do little more than mutter angrily. An elderly man standing next to Dr. Boyance remarked quietly, They're no fools, these Americans. They're looking for women with experience of life, and if you ask me, they pick the right ones. Many of the Dutch disliked these forms of revenge, but others resented the way that British soldiers in particular tried to interfere. Generally speaking, they don't have the same hatred of the Germans as we have, a woman said. I told them that they could not imagine what these years had been like for us. There were, in any case, many worse things to worry about. In Nijmegen, as the 82nd Airborne and the Guards Armour Division prepared to fight their way in, the Waffen-SS resorted to arson as a weapon of war. Parties of marauding troops were sent as fire raisers into the town. They banged on doors and shouted, Anybody still here? You must leave the house at once. It's going to be set on fire. The fires are taking on fantastic dimensions, noted Albertus Urian in his diary. Whole blocks were ablaze as the battle went on, with German and American machine guns firing. Flames leap up to great heights, walls cave in, rafters crash down, and in between are the cries of fleeing people and the sharp crack of rifles and machine gun fire. It's a stampede. Nobody remains in the danger zone. A few have salvaged the various necessities, such as clothing and blankets, and in fear, haul these along to a safer place. Mothers hold their crying tots close to them. Desperate fathers carry the bigger children, as well as hastily packed suitcases. The anxieties they've been through can clearly be read in their faces. As expected, another German attack on Frost's men at Arnhem Bridge came at dawn the next morning. SS troops forced the Dutch to leave their houses in the vicinity. One of the last sounds that Konrad Ullermann remembered shortly before leaving his house for the very last time was the unearthly racket of an upright piano on the floor above being riddled with machine gun bullets. The defenders of the bridge had already heard all the firing to the west, where other battalions of the, from the 1st Airborne were trying to fight through uh, the 9th SS Hohenstaufen's blocking lines to try to get to them. 
they had little chance of success. The planners back in Britain had not spotted how the routes leading from the landing and drop zones came together in West Arnhem on the side of a steep hill near the St. Elizabeth Hospital, providing an ideal choke point for the Germans to defend. There were many grisly sights. Smoke and fire darkened the streets, broken glass and broken vehicles and debris littered the road. A paratrooper with the 1st Battalion described the smouldering body of a lieutenant ahead of them. A tracer bullet had ignited the phosphorus bomb in one of his pouches and he was burned to death. A distraught father was seen pushing a handcart with the body of a child. A dead civilian in blue overalls lay in the water, the, uh, lay in the gutter, the water from a burst main lapping gently around his body. There were also bizarre moments in the middle of the battle. A Dutchman stepped out of his house and asked two British soldiers in English if they would like a cup of tea as bullets whizzed past them. A little further back along the route that they had come from, the bodies of British paratroopers lay everywhere, many of them behind trees or poles, a member, telegraph poles, a member of the Arnhem Underground recorded. He then saw a man about middle age who wore a hat. This man went up to every dead soldier, lifted his hat, and stood in silence for a few seconds. There was something terribly chaplinesque about the scene, he concluded. With most officers killed or wounded, a chaotic retreat from Arnhem was soon underway. Men appeared out of the smoke of battle, as a doctor put it, running back in ones and twos, like animals escaping from a forest fire. The fighting at the north end of the bridge continued just as savagely. As ammunition ran low, Colonel Frost issued strict orders to make every single shot count and only to open fire when the Germans were attacking in the open. During one charge, a paratrooper was heard to yell at them, stand still, you sods, these bullets cost money. For one or two, the unbelievable strain of battle was just too much. A sapper suffering from combat stress walked out of the embattled school, calling out, we're all going to die. Everybody yelled at him to come back, but he walked straight into the line of German fire. Psychological breakdown in battle could take different forms, ranging from catatonia and uncontrollable shaking to combat exhaustion, which led to bizarre behavior later on. In the Sonod Hotel, one of the improvised field hospitals in Osterbeek, a barely wounded soldier would take off all his clothes and walk around pumping his arms and making noise like a locomotive. Another would wake people in the middle of the night and stare into their eyes to ask, have you got faith? At the St. Elizabeth Hospital, a Sister Stransky, a nurse from Vienna, had a strange encounter with a German uh, case of combat fatigue. A Wehrmacht soldier appeared armed with a pistol. Sister Stransky refused to allow him to come in. He kept repeating to her, I have come all the way from Siberia with a new weapon to rescue the Fuhrer. When still refused entry, he simply sat down on the steps of the hospital entrance and started sobbing uncontrollably. Just before the end of the fighting for Arnhem Bridge, Colonel Frost, who had been wounded, awoke to hear some of the casualties around him gibbering quietly, as he put it. They were shell-shock cases, and most started shaking uncontrollably every time that there was an explosion. 
And apparently there was one soldier there with black hair whose hair went completely white in the course of a single week from stress. Others faced death with a calm resignation which deeply impressed those who witnessed it. One man, shortly before uh, dying from uh, bullet wounds, observed, I laconically, and to think, I was worried that my parachute wouldn't open. A sergeant who knew he was dying said to a medic, I know I'm not going to live. Would you please just hold my hand? And a little later, he passed away. Although the Schoenord was clearly marked with Red Cross symbols, the machine gun fire continued and a German assault gun fired four rounds into the building. The wide picture windows at the front were gaping holes bordered by wicked glass stilettos. The utterly vulnerable wounded could do little but put on their steel helmets and pull their blankets up over their faces as a defense against flying glass, which almost made them look like children trying to hide under the bedclothes. Courage can never be predicted by appearances. A big, beefy man might go to pieces while a slight, unassuming character could emerge a hero. Captain Lionel Kerribel had taken command of a company in the 10th Parachute Battalion north of the Amsterdam Amsterweg. With his slightly whimsical expression, Kerribel did not look like a man likely to win the Victoria Cross posthumously for a whole series of actions. His men referred to him as Captain Q and thought he looked more like a country parson than a soldier. Although wounded in the face, Kerripel first carried a wounded sergeant out of danger. He then stormed a German position which had two machine guns and a captured British six-pounder anti-tank gun. He was wounded again. Then, as another German threw uh, stick grenades, he picked them up and threw them back. Finally, as the German counterattack increased greatly in strength, he ordered his men to pull back while he held off the Germans with hand grenades and a Sten gun. Also, that Wednesday, one of the greatest examples of collective bravery took place just west of Nijmegen when Major Julian Cook's uh, battalion of the 82nd Airborne paddled across the River Vaal under heavy fire. In the movie uh, A Bridge Too Far, Major Cook was played by uh, Robert Redford. To my great surprise, I found in an American archive a furious letter from Major Cook protesting both of being played by Robert Redford and the way he was portrayed. I'd thought that most men would have been rather flattered, but anyway. <laughs> when the trucks bringing 26 uh, assault boats eventually arrived, the paratroopers were appalled to find uh, that they were simply uh, canvas with a wooden frame on the base. The order was given, and the paratroopers and engineers shouldered the boats like coffins with their outside hand carrying their weapons. They ran over the top of the dike, then down the slope. Sliding and slipping in the mud, they then struggled to get their boats straight in the water and clamber aboard. Captain Henry Keep, who had been an oarsman uh, at uh, Princeton University, was counting one, two, three, four, but their efforts were all over the place. Then the Germans began firing in, in, in earnest with small arms fire, with machine guns, uh, and even with 20mm flat guns. Some boats were literally blown out of the water, while the small arms fire coming from the northern bank, as one person put it, looked like some sort of seething cauldron, and another person compared it to a hailstorm. 
In everyone's ears, Henry Keep wrote in this letter to his mother, was the constant roar of bursting artillery shells, the dull wham of a 20mm or the disconcerting ping of rifle bullets. There was also the unmistakable thwack whenever a bullet hit a body. The arm muscles of those paddling screamed with the pain and the strain. But at last we reached the other side, Keep continued. We climbed over the wounded and dead in the bottom of the boat and waded to shore, where behind a small embankment we flopped down, gasping for breath, safe for the moment from the incessant firing. They then began to advance in an extended skirmishing line, many hundreds of yards wide. They cursed and yelled at each other as they advanced, firing their weapons, machine guns and, uh, uh, and rifles from the hip. Many times I have seen troops who were driven to a fever pitch, Keep wrote. Troops who, for a brief interval of combat, are lifted out of themselves. Fanatics rendered crazy by rage and the lust for killing. Men who forget temporarily the meaning of fear. It is then that the great military feats of history occur, which are commemorated so gloriously in our textbooks. It is an awe-inspiring sight, but not a pretty one. Staff Sergeant Clark Fuller described his own experience of this sudden metamorphosis from intense fear to a sense of invulnerability. When we finally got to the opposite shore, I experienced a feeling I'd never felt before. All the fear of the past 15 or 20 minutes seemed to leave me, to be replaced by a surge of reckless abandon that threw caution to the winds. I felt as if I single-handedly could lick the whole German army. The courage and the aggression of these American paratroopers prompted one guards officer who was present to observe, I think these paratroopers must be fed on dynamite or raw meat. The massacre which followed, as both fleeing and surrendering Germans were shot down, was a shocking sight. Over 200 bodies were recovered just from one bit of the ra uh, rail bridge. The commanding officer of the Sherwood Rangers, so, uh, uh, an English uh, yeomanry uh, regiment, whose tanks supported the 82nd Airborne, liked Brigadier General Jim Gavin and considered his paratroopers to be the best infantry they had ever worked with. But maybe on some occasions, Christofferson wrote, uh, they were too tough, especially in the treatment of their prisoners, whom they seldom took. I shall never forget seeing a jeep full of American paratroopers driving along with the head of a German pierced with an iron stake and tied to the front. The spectacle haunts me still. At Osterbeek, the German and Austrian Jews in the Pathfinder Company could be just as pitiless. They too gunned down young German soldiers with their arms up trying to surrender. During a slight lull after a, another attack, those in the Pathfinder Company on the north side of the perimeter were surprised to hear music through the trees. A German loudspeaker van was playing in the mood. Stayed in position all day, a Pathfinder wrote in his diary. Plenty of mortaring and sniper fire, so I made myself a humdinger of a little trench. Got another cert when a bunch of jerrys came right out into the open in front of us. Also several possibles. Heard a mobile speaker in the distance. Funny shooting jerrys to dance music. British paratroopers could certainly be tough. A wounded officer from the 1st para-battalion was lying in an aid station. Next to me, he recorded, was one of our chaps with his fingers blown off, coolly smoking a cigarette held between the bloody stumps of his fingers. Somehow summed up the airborne soldier, I thought. When writing this book and contrasting the different nationalities involved, the Germans, the Dutch, the Poles, the Americans and the British, 
I became intrigued by the whole question of national character. But the more I thought about it, the more I became convinced that national character as such simply does not exist. It's a myth and a dangerous generalization. What can exist, of course, is a national self-image, which impels people to behave in certain ways. Dutch civilians could not get over the way that the Germans felt obliged to shout commands the whole time uh, to demonstrate their authority. According to a number of accounts, uh, Waffen-SS soldiers really did say to British prisoners, for you, the war is over. And when it came to the um, Dutch, Poles and Americans alike, could not get over the way that the British felt compelled to joke in adversity or halt to make tea in the afternoon, even when a battle was going on. Their officers referred also to going into action as going to a party. All this really irritated the Poles, for whom the war was a fight not just for survival, but for their very identity as a nation. The British, convinced of their own moral superiority, adopted what one might call an inverted self-deprecation. One of my favorite moments in the book takes place in the improvised field hospital at uh, the Hotel Sunor. A young doctor recorded that when SS Panzer Grenadiers charged in with weapons raised and bellowing orders, the imperturbable senior medical man, Colonel Arthur Marable, simply took his pipe out of his mouth and said to his surgeons and orderlies, good show chaps, don't take any notice of the Jerry's, carry on as if nothing has happened. For civilians still in Osterbeck, the constant German bombardment was terrifying. People in cellars lay curled up underneath their mattresses. Anxious mothers made their children wear saucepans on their heads like helmets. At the back of our house, an anonymous diarist wrote, a great hole, round hole appeared after a shell exploded. Windows and doors were splintered. Huge holes appeared in the ceiling. Cupboard doors were like a colander from the shrapnel. Lampshades, chair covers, everything was destroyed. Yet... From over the fireplace, a portrait of Princess Juliana and Prince Bernhardt with their children looked at me as if this was a daily occurrence. Bravery and fighting skills were not enough when the lightly armed paratroopers and glider pilots, lacking ammunition, faced Königstiger or Royal Tiger tanks. Finally, on the night of the 25th of September, after nine days of fighting, the pitiful remnants of the 1st British Airborne Division was withdrawn across the Rhine. The next day, those who had not managed to get away were rounded up by triumphant SS Panzergrenadiers. One German officer with an amused air studied a small disheveled man with a badly scratched face wearing an unfamiliar dark blue uniform. I don't want Frenchmen, only British, he said in English. I ain't no bleeding froggy, the man retorted. I'm in the Navy. You'll be telling me in a minute, the officer replied archly, that you sailed up the Rhine in a submarine. It turned out that this prisoner, in fact, was a uh, fleet air arm fitter based at the same aerodrome as one of the transport squadrons. And he'd offered to carry, come along on the, one of the rides so as to help push out the bundles, uh, the supply bundles. But the plane was hit, and uh, we had no option but to parachute along with the crew. 
In Oosterbeek, a Dutchman with three wounded, uh, badly wounded British soldiers in the cellar of a house uh, was there when a German voice shouted from ab uh, above asking, is anyone there? Yes, the soldiers shouted back. Two SS Panzergrenadiers charged down the stairs. One of them, Bergerham, began screaming, you are our prisoners, hands up, and continued to swear and insult uh, the British. Jan Eckelhoff, who, with the resistance who was with them, described how one of the wounded soldiers ignored his, his ranting and simply pulled out a packet of cigarettes and offered him one. German was so astonished he, he stopped shouting and just stood there with his mouth half open. The Germans were utterly bemused by that British compulsion to joke, even in defeat. A tough guider, guider pilot sergeant, faced by a tense panzer grenadier pointing a rifle at his chest, Chuck calmly took out a small mirror from his pocket and he examined his growth of beard and then, with an absolutely straight face, he asked his captor whether there happened to be a dance in town that night. While British paratroopers prisoners made the best of a bad job, this was a very dangerous time for the Dutch civilians who'd helped the Allies. The Germans were determined to identify them. When we woke up the next morning, all was quiet, wrote C.B. Labouchere, a member of the Arnhem Underground, who'd been attached to the British headquarters at the Hartenstein Hotel. A quietness we had not experienced for nine days. Not a shot was heard. The German authorities ordered the population of Oosterbeek to leave immediately. Along the road, the SS lined up the 150 German prisoners released from the tennis courts where they'd been held, uh, telling them to try and identify any of the civilians who had actually helped the British. Some Dutch SS took great satisfaction in yelling at a group of women, you see, you celebrated too soon. One of the women, forced from their homes, to which the Germans set fire, wrote philosophically, Just for a moment I look behind me. Flames and smoke bellow from the house. We feel separated from it. We still have our lives. Civilians trapped behind German lines in the northern Netherlands had very little to joke about. When Field Marshal Montgomery tried to pretend that Operation Market Garden had been a success, Prince Bernhardt, the Dutch commander-in-chief, uh, observed that his country could not afford another Montgomery victory. The assistance of the Dutch to the Allied Airborne <coughs> divisions and to the national rail strike, which they called and uh, implemented to hinder the arrival of German reinforcements and supplies, provoked a terrible uh, Nazi vengeance because they cut off the food supplies to the main cities in revenge. Members of the Wehrmacht in Rotterdam bragged that they did not need to pay at a brothel. They boasted that for half a loaf of bread they could get anything they wanted from Dutch girls. During what became known as the Hunger Winter of 1944-45, almost 20,000 people died of starvation. Some estimates go even higher, since famine weakens resistance to disease. Although the Dutch had much to forgive, their generosity to Allied troops at the time and ever since towards the airborne victim, veterans has been for the British, I think, one of the most moving legacies of the Second World War. Amid the astonishing courage shown by civilians and soldiers alike in the Dutch archives, I found one story particularly poignant. 
an English parachute lieutenant who had got married just a few days before Operation Market Garden went to pieces just after landing. Along with two shell-shocked medical orderlies, he hid in the cellar of a country house on the western edge of Osterberg. The three men made no attempt to rejoin their units. They were still there after the remnants of the division pulled back across the Rhine. And the family risked execution if the British soldiers were found there. The son finally persuaded the three Englishmen to follow him after dark down to the river to swim across to Allied lines. The two medical orderlies made it across, but the newly married lieutenant drowned in the fast current. Two years later, when the war was over, his young widow visited Osterbeek. She went to meet the family. One thing led to another, and not long afterwards, she married the son who had taken her husband down to the riverbank. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you for a, a dramatic uh, flavour of what is a mighty and meticulously researched book. And uh, Anthony will be signing it in the signing tent next door after this session. Let's have the lights up, because I'm sure, this being an Edinburgh audience, there will be immediate questions. So although I have a sheaf with me, now we have four roving mics, and they will dash to you as quickly as possible. There's one there, yes. and two up there. Okay. Yes, sir. Oh, madam, I'm sorry. Do you think if the uh, British First Airborne had been dropped on or close to their objectives instead of eight miles away and in greater strength, possibly utilising all the gliders that uh, Lieutenant General Browning had for his personal uh, vanity drop uh, near Nijmegen, that the plan may have succeeded after all? Well, you're quite right to point to the problem of the plan. I mean, right from the start... The trouble was that Field Marshal Montgomery uh, did not trust the Air Force. Now, both General Eisenhower, the Supreme Commander, had told Montgomery that all planning for Operation Market Garden had to be shared with the Air Force. And in fact, the, both the War Office and the Air Ministry had agreed that the Air Force had final say. But Montgomery, who uh, was furious uh, after D-Day, uh, in fact had been furious before D-Day, when Air Chief Marshal uh, Lee Mallory had uh, rather panicked over the, what he thought was going to be the disaster of the airborne drop, um, Montgomery described him as a gutless bugger. And this was his attitude generally in this particular way. And he said, I, this was to his own boss, Field Marshal Brooke, he said, I am going to impose my plan on the Air Force. And the trouble was that uh, he summoned uh, General Boy Browning over to um, Brussels. Um, the plan was conceived or was uh, written down between Browning and Dempsey. And um, Browning then went back to England to tell the first Allied Airborne Army, which was basically run by the American US Air Force, and um, said, right, this is what the field marshal has decided. 
Uh, and when he finished, um, Brigadier Williams, who was the head of the uh, transport side, basically then pointed out one thing after another, i.e. that the days were shorter, so they couldn't get two lifts in, um, that they could only pull one glider after each aircraft and not two, as had been part of the planning. And um, thirdly, they were refusing point-blank to drop any of the so-called coup de main parties, like Pegasus Bridge in Normandy, but any of the glider commando assault on the bridges. So from that point of view, all, everything was sort of undermined right from the start. So this was the real problem. Now, Browning should have gone straight back to Montgomery and said, sorry, Field Marshal, uh, we must rethink the whole thing. But he didn't, because he was desperate to go into action. He was desperate to command the corps in action. Um, and that's why he insisted on taking his own headquarters, which was, frankly, totally useless, because each division was fighting a separate battles, and he wasn't coordinating anything. But anyway, that was one of the series. And the, the real problem was, of course, that airborne troops, um, if they cannot land almost immediately or straight away onto their objectives are going to be vulnerable because they lose surprise, and surprise is the one uh, advantage that lightly armed airborne troops have. So basically, the whole plan, frankly, was a mess right from the start. So one can go through a lot of what-ifs, if uh, this had happened or that had happened, could it possibly have worked? The trouble was that basically the whole plan depended on everything going right. And, you know, there's an old saying in the British Army that no plan survives contact with the enemy. Um, and this was certainly the case um, here. I mean, everything was not going to go right. In fact, Brigadier Shan Hackett uh, said afterwards to... Um, Professor Michael Howard, you know, uh, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. Um, but they only needed one thing to go wrong, and that was, that was it. Montgomery does not come well out of this history. No. Will his uh, legendary folk hero status be terminally damaged by this book? Well, I don't know about that, but it was, I mean, I already, uh, I was slightly nervous when, with my Ardennes book, which is the period afterwards, December 1944, um, because, I mean, Montgomery's behavior was so extraordinary, the way that he was provoking the Americans, um, that I hazarded the possibility that uh, Montgomery actually uh, had high-functioning Asperger's. Um, and then the Today program thought that I should debate this with his step-grandson who'd grown up with him. And he said, well, actually, I think that's probably the best explanation for Monty's uh, behavior. And then having thought that I'd come up with something original, I was then told that actually a professor of psychiatry at Trinity College Dublin had written a large paper on the whole subject of Montgomery and high-functioning Asperger's 20 years before. So, you know, you always think that you're original, but in fact, not at all so. Uh, I think we've got two mics yes. there, do we? Yes. Uh, Sir Anthony, the, as you'll know yourself, the history of the Second World War is full of, uh, you know, if onlys and uh, what ifs. But do you think that if uh, Market Garden had been successful, would it have ended the Second World War in Europe by uh, Christmas 1944? Um. Well, I, the, the, as, I, as I've said uh, sort of rather launchly, I prefer to leave the what-ifs to Neil Ferguson and Andrew Roberts, who enjoy them, enjoy them both. Um, but um, I don't think it would have done necessarily, because you've only got to see uh, the way that Hitler would have thrown absolutely everything against the bridgehead over the Rhine. Um, and the trouble was, you see, Montgomery had not yet opened the port of Antwerp, or rather the port of Antwerp had been captured, but the Schelder uh, estuary uh, was still dominated by German guns because the 15th Army had withdrawn along the coast. 
so from that point of view, they would simply not have had the supplies or the reinforcements which they would have needed coming through the port of Antwerp at that particular point. So I don't think there's any way that it would have got through, that they would have ended the war by December 1944. Um, and to be perfectly honest, the war was more being decided on the Eastern Front uh, than actually on the Western Front at that particular stage. I mean, there are lots of ironies one can come up with, you know, if the Americans hadn't given uh, the Red Army quite a half a million military vehicles, you know, uh, the Americans would have got to Berlin long before the Russians and a whole lot of things like that one can come up with. Uh, but I don't think it was really, even if they'd got across the Rhine and held that bridge and bridgehead at Arnhem, um, that actually it would have ended the war by at the end of the year, it would still have ground on into the next year. And that, that is the terrifying figure, that more people died in that last stage of the war than almost in the whole of the rest of the war. Uh, it was uh, horrific. And the real losers were the Dutch civilians. The real losers were the Dutch civilians in that particular way. And that's why I think that their, 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 their generosity is um, quite astonishing in that particular way and wonderful. You mentioned uh, A Bridge Too Far. Uh, Cornelius Ryan, who wrote the book on which the Hollywood movie was based, you've, you've filleted some uh, eyewitness uh, testimony from his book and indeed from the other... Uh, well, actually, funny enough, not actually from his book, what had happened was that Cornelius Ryan was actually dying of cancer when right. he read that book. And he had a superb team of researchers. Um, and he, he only used a tiny part of what uh. they came up with. And in the, uh, this extraordinary archive in Athens, Ohio, um, there's a phenomenal amount of, of, of fascinating material of, of, of the interviews which they took and uh, accounts and diaries uh, which they collected at the time, which hadn't, as I say, been used. And the other chap... Uh Rick, Rick, Rick Atkinson. Rick Atkinson, yes, yes. yes. Oh, Rick's a great friend. I mean, he was the one who kept on sort of saying, Anthony, I don't think you realise quite how important this archive is. Get up there, you know. Yeah. And uh, I certainly realised how right it was. How long did it take you to write this? And I, I, I well, three years. They're, they're, uh, Stalingrad and Berlin took four years each. Um, and this was three years like Arden and D-Day, yeah. And who do you write for? I mean, you clearly write for everybody, but... but have you, have you got in your mind an idea? Well, you, you may be shocked by this, but actually I write entirely for myself, and I think every writer should write entirely for themselves. You should... <laughs> you should... I just write the sort of book that I would like to read myself. Um, and, you know, if other people happen to like it, wonderful. But I don't think... You, if you try to second-guess your audience, I think, I think you tend to... People tend, writers tend to get it wrong. You will enjoy it. Uh, hands. One there. One here. Two there, in fact. I tell you, uh, let, let's take them both. If you, if you hand yeah. it to the chap beside you after you've asked yep. your question. A much more prosaic thing. Can you say something about the relationship between Urquhart and Browning post-battle? Because there are various rumours as to what happened when they met. Sorry, relationship between what Urquhart and Browning? Or, yes. Uh, yes, when they uh, met up. Um, and and I'll t we'll take the second question as well, since you're just there. Yes. Well, Urquhart, Urquhart was always in a difficult position, partly because he had not been an airborne um, officer. Uh, he'd been pushed into the job by uh, Monte. Uh, it was promotion. He'd been a very good brigadier in Italy. Um, and he could hardly say no, but I mean, he was slightly taken aback and surprised that he had been chosen. There was a, there was a lot of background complications on why the previous uh, divisional commander had uh, been sent to India and so forth. Um, but anyway, the point was that um, 
Urquhart um, did everything that he could in training and uh, getting the division ready uh, for war. Um, but he, when it uh, came to it, and they, first of all, they were given this uh, plan called Operation Comet, which was very similar to Operation Market Garden, only with far fewer troops. Uh, then they were told, oh, well, you've now got two extra divisions. But, I mean, Urquhart knew right from the start, I think, even though he was somebody who did not want to rock the boat, and particularly the problem was, uh, afterwards, he did not want to criticise because they did not want to undermine, particularly for those who'd lost who'd families who'd lost a loved one at Arnhem and all the rest of it, you know, they did not want to sort of undermine what had gone on and what the full flaws were in the planning process. But, I mean, one of the fascinating things that I did find in the archives uh, was that actually Urquhart had warned uh, Browning that this was going to be a suicide operation. Um, and, um, in fact, General Gale, who was uh, f even more experienced, who commanded the, the drops and was a superb airborne commander in Normandy, uh, commanding six airborne, uh, he told uh, Browning that actually, you know, he should refuse this plan because, you know, without the coup de main parties on the bridges and all the rest of it. Uh, but Browning said, no, you've got to keep your mouth shut. You know, we mustn't undermine morale. And this does bring out, and I was debating it actually with General Mike Jackson the other day in Hungerford, literally on Thursday. Um, I mean, it does make this huge problem, which one sees even sometimes today uh, in military operations, that it's very difficult for officers to say to a senior officer, well, I don't think this is a very good idea for an operation, sir, uh, because it makes, you may sound faint-hearted. Um, you know, you always have to sound sort of, you know, fairly... Uh, uh, can do and all the rest of it, which I think is one of the sort of cultural problems inherent within a military organisation. Um, my father was one of a, a group of Poles that got from Drill over to Urquhart um, at Oosterbeck. Mm -hmm. And um, I, think it, I think it's common knowledge that, that the relationship that, that Sosabowski had with, with both Horrocks uh, and Browning in particular was not the best. Uh, <laughs> That's putting it mildly, yes. Uh, I think they behaved appallingly. Um, and I say, so, I say so very much in the book. Um, Sosobowski was a very brave and experienced officer. You know, he'd been, uh, he'd been an instructor at the... Uh, he'd been the head of the Polish um, Staff College, all the rest of it. Um, and um, he, right from the start, was another one who warned that uh, it was going to be a disaster. Because he kept saying, you know, but the Germans, General, the Germans, um, i.e., uh, he knew very well how rapidly the Germans reacted to disaster, sorted themselves out and counterattacked. And I'm afraid it goes back to the, one of the problems was also British complacency. Um, the idea that the Germans were on the run, they were all collapsing, it was like August 1918 all over again. And they also had this uh, idea, basic idea, that ever since the July plot, um, any army which tried to kill their own commander-in-chief uh, must be in a state of disintegration. But they completely failed to realise that actually the failure to kill Hitler meant that the Nazi party, the SS and Hitler, now had total control over the German army as a result. And therefore, they were going to go on fighting uh, right to the very end until Hitler himself was dead. And the British and the Americans uh, failed to appreciate that in their sort of intelligence assessments. But this, I think, was the real, was the real problem there. But Sosobowski was very badly uh, treated afterwards, uh, was sacked as a result of Montgomery, uh, who tried to claim that actually the Poles weren't keen to fight. That was absolutely untrue. 
um, they've been dealt a really bad hand. Um, and I'm afraid Montgomery, Browning and, um, and Horrocks especially um, did not uh, cover themselves at all with glory on that particular aspect. Final question. Yes. Well, thank you very much for yet another wonderful address last year or the year before you came. And this one is again fascinating. Thank you. I had wanted to raise drill, the very issue that was uh, raised by the previous speaker, because uh, our Queen of the Netherlands, Queen Beatrix, readjusted in a very major way the enormous debt that the Dutch had towards the Polish brigade. And we really corrected that because after the war, the Poles were not even allowed to participate in the victory parade. And we really got that corrected a few years ago. Thank you. You're absolutely right. I mean, it was one of the most shameful things, I think, of the post-war government uh, to have refused to allow the uh, Poles to take part in the victory parade, uh, considering the sacrifices they'd made, whether in Italy, in the Battle of Britain, and, uh, uh, and of course, at Arnhem. Um, and I'm afraid that was a fear of uh, uh, upsetting um, the Soviet government at the time and uh, 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 Generalissimo Stalin. Um, but uh, yes, um, I've certainly seen um, the film of uh, Queen Beatrix and uh, uh, the reception of now what is called the Sosovowski Brigade uh, of the Polish parachutes to, to, to this day. Um, and anyway, I'll be going to Warsaw in January. I don't know why my Polish publishers always send me to Warsaw in January. It's not exactly <laughs> the, the best time of year to go. Um, and it'd be quite interesting to hear what their reactions will be. But yes, thank you very much. Great book, great writer. Thank you for coming. Please thank Anthony Beaver. Thank you. Thanks so much. The next door. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.